Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, this is our seventh apologetics class. Um, I was talking to Scott. I was a little distracted today reading all the stuff that's going on with Ukraine. I was a former intel officer, so I always get sucked into that stuff. But uh, um, so let's go ahead and pray. Um, pray for those forces that are over there that are kind of getting pulled into this. I have uh, my brother-in-law is actually uh, he's stationed in Germany, but he's elsewhere right now in another NATO country. So let's uh, just go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord. We thank you for this day. Um, we thank you, Lord, that you're sovereign. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that we can trust in you. Even when uh, things happen in the world, Lord, that we can just trust that you are ultimately in control and that all things will work together for the for your good and for our good, Lord. And help us just to realize that and to, and just like you spoke about Jesus and the rumors of wars and all that kind of stuff, Lord, help us just to take refuge in you. And we lift up... Uh, uh, everybody involved in the, the conflict going on right now, uh, the Ukrainian people and those uh, sol the cons now conscripted soldiers who are having to leave their families who are staying behind and uh, for all of our NATO allies and for all of our forces over in Europe, Lord. So we just lift them up to you. Also, Lord, um, we uh, uh, pray for this evening. Um, pray, please just uh, uh, help us to be edifying to everyone and help us to just become better defenders of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, admittedly, there's going, to be a, there's going to be some crossover with some of the facts that we talked about last time. Um, but I really have two main points that I want to kind of convey to you or for you to get tonight. Is that those, those points that I list out last time, and there's going to be five key ones that I'm going to give today that... Uh, all scholars, to include secular scholars, recognize as, as factual. Um, and second, uh, I want, so I want you to understand that, you know, there's secular scholars that are, that attest to the truths that we have in the Gospels. But second, I kind of want to give you a, a model of how to think about um, secular or counter explanations for facts of the Gospel. Uh, and I'm going to kind of address some of them. I'll give, I want to list the facts out, talk about how they're, what kind of um, history they're rooted in, and then we're going to kind of go step by step um, through them and talk about some counter arguments. And the point is, is that I want to give you, uh, like I said, a model of how to address this, because often people will throw out kind of wild explanations um, surrounding Jesus or surrounding the resurrection uh, but if you're if you don't kind of think well about it or kind of methodically think about it, you know somebody might say, well, you know, oh they stole the body and you just go, oh man, and you don't think about it beyond that without taking into account the other facts that we know. Um, then sometimes that I know that that can rock people a little bit when they these counter ideas come in. But if you understand what we know is true, the facts that we have, the facts that even you know, secularists and all, you know, everyone would agree with, and you kind of run those ideas that people are saying through that, that gives us a means of kind of vetting or refuting these counterclaims that sometimes people bring up. Um, so, like I said, I want to reiterate that if, because I've taught on this before, and sometimes it takes a little bit to kind of think through, but as I kind of go through each section, I'll kind of ask for questions and if we have anything kind of pertaining to that, that specific fact or what it just went through, we'll ask at that time because I want to make sure you kind of are, are getting it and understanding it. Um, so today, like I said, we're going to talk about five key historical facts that even secular scholars recognize as historical fact. Um, some of them, there's a couple that are very similar to what we have from last week. However, there is... There is one big difference with um, the appearance of Jesus to his disciples, uh, and secular scholars will only admit that his disciples thought that he appeared to them. They, they stop short of saying that he actually appeared to them. They'll say he, they, that all of those people thought that they did. But even if they thought that they did, there's not really a way to explain it other than he did. But, uh, so that's one of the key things. Uh, that they, they won't say, yes, he did appear to them. They'll say, well, he, they thought he appeared to them. So I'm going to read these off, and I kind of want you to go ahead and write them down, um, just so as we go through it, you can kind of see and compare 
against the against the other ones. So the first one, the first fact for scholars, everyone agrees with is Jesus died by crucifixion. Jesus died by crucifixion. Uh, the second one is is soon after Jesus' death, his followers had real experiences that though they th thought were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. So again, thought. That's what they'll say. I'll, yeah, I'll read again. Very soon, or soon after Jesus' death, his followers had real experiences that they thought were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. So he had re they all had real experiences, real to them, that they thought were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. And you can hear in that kind of how that's phrased differently than his disciples saw the risen Jesus. And it's, a, it's kind of a, um, a twisting by them because they don't want to admit that they saw him. So a very soon after Jesus' death, his followers had real experiences that they thought were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Number three, and we talked, we talked, I talked about last week, but um, his disciples, their lives were transformed as a result, even to the point of being willing to die specifically for their faith in the resurrection message. So his disciples lied from seeing him, even to the point of being willing to die for their faith in the resurrection message. Number four, James, Jesus' unbelieving brother, became a Christian due to his own experience with whom he believed to be the resurrected Christ. James, Jesus' unbelieving brother, became a Christian due to his own experience with whom he believed to be the resurrected Christ. And you hear that they, he believed to be. So again, these, these are what secular, you know, secular scholars will, are willing to admit to. And what, kind of what we're going to talk about is how you can kind of defeat them on their own grounds, if you will. Okay, and the last one, this one's a lot shorter. Jesus' tomb was empty. That's it. <laughs> Jesus' tomb was, was empty. So, <clears throat> did anybody need any repeats of anything? Okay. Three? Okay. Uh, their lives were transformed as a result, even to the point of being willing to die specifically for their faith in the resurrection message. So they, his disciples were willing to die for their faith in the resurrection message. Okay. So these facts are actually supporting. Any explanation of these, any explanations at all for the resurrection that do not account for all five of these facts fail. Okay. So this goes, the theory that explains the totality of the evidence is most likely to be true. All the facts. And again, the five facts we just listed are recognized by every legitimate scholar. As we'll see, the resurrection account and the that explains all the evidence. Thus, it must be the only true explanation. We'll explore facts that are anti-resurrection, if you will, or secular or anti-Christian, but we address all these independently verifiable facts. Also, these opposing exp explanations just muddy the water and raise more issues and concerns than the answer. So we, should, we ought to accept an event as historical if it gives the best explanation of all the evidence surrounding it. And as we'll see, the resurrection of Christ is the only explanation. That actually makes sense and answers all five of these. Now, these five 
um, as I said before, even by con conservative Christian scholars. Regardless, even liberal Christian, liberal Christian scholars, non-Christian scholars, and atheist scholars recognize the occurrence's historical nature. Okay. If you ever heard of Bart Ehrman, this is a quote from Bart Ehrman. Um, he's, I think he's technically an agnostic. He was a Christian at one point in time, but um, this is what he has to say. So he's very hostile towards the gospel. He says, historians, of course, have no difficulty whatsoever speaking about the belief in Jesus' resurrection, since this is a matter of public record. Of course, speaking of the body of historical evidence for the resurrection. Also, he says, we can say that some of his disciples insisted that he soon appeared to them, convincing them that he had been raised from the dead. So this is Bart Ehrman. He's hostile, and he's saying, well, yeah, his disciples, they saw him, or thought they saw him, and he, they convinced him. Whatever this happened was, it convinced them to, to go preach the gospel. So we have the New Testament in Christianity affirming several facts about the history of the resurrection. Now, admittedly, he uses subjective terms like belief in the resurrection and words like his disciples insisted that Jesus appeared to them. He does, he does this to tip, tiptoe around the fact that Jesus was actually resurrected. Um, he does not want to outright confirm that Jesus was actually, actually appeared to his disciples, merely that they thought he did, or merely that they thought that Jesus did. For the skeptic, Urban, to say otherwise would be an outright admission for the whole biblical narrative. So he's saying these things, he's tiptoeing around the fact, and you'll see how the other explanations for what, even what he's saying doesn't, doesn't make, make any sense. However, in his statement, he, verifi he verifies a few of our facts that we just said. Um, and any, again, any explanation needs to account for all of our facts that were previously mentioned. Now, we have our five facts and admission by secular scholars that they are true. Now, I briefly want to go over some of the ways we know these facts are true in Christianity. So what are some that are hostile to Christianity? Well, in the, and I mentioned some of this in the question and answer previously, but, well, it's, it, it, it uh, is fruitful to flush it out again. So to include the, the part of the Jewish canon, um, while we are focused on the resurrection today, this source not only recounts the death and resurrection, they say he was a, a wizard or something like a sorcerer is how they say he was able to do this stuff. Um, there's a, a historian named Josephus. He was a Jew. Um, he, if you go look at the story of Josephus, it's kind of funny. They're on, uh, there was a last stand. I think it was Masada was the, was the place. And the Romans were coming in. This is after they had wiped out the temple and all this stuff. And he had a vision from God that he was supposed to convert and recant and go uh, become a Roman citizen. But he became a historian and he wrote a lot of stuff uh, to include things about Jesus. So um, in his work, Jewish Antiquities, Josephus writes about Jesus. And I'm going to quote what he says. He says, about wise man, and if, de if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept that accepted the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when upon the men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to send he appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things, and thousands of other marvels about him, and the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. That's a Roman Jewish uh, historian. You know, there's a couple things, if you ever read Case for Christ, there's a couple things where some people contend that there was insertions of like saying that he was the Messiah. But even, even those things aside, if you take those out, he still confirms 
the, the main historical facts of the gospel, of his resurrection, of him being appearing to his disciples, all that kind of stuff. Um, also, there's first century Roman historians. Uh, there's Senator Tacitus in his work, The Annals, writes about Jesus. I'm not going to read through all that. Uh, the list goes on. Um, as I mentioned before, there's, there's numerous historians that wrote about uh, that wrote about Jesus, first century historians. Um, and this is not a, that what I've read before, it's not an exhaustive list by, list by any means. Um, now, Nusha and all the scholarly work that backs up how we know these five facts are true. However, the basic point is that the general consensus in the academic community for the historicity or historical nature of the five facts that we talked about, also these facts non-Christian, both biblical and non-biblical sources. So let us take a look at these five facts individually um, and some of the non-resurrection or some of the non-Christian attempts to answer them and how Christ rising from the dead is the only response that really addresses all these five facts, that addresses all the evidence. Also, pay attention to how we kind of think through these facts that we know and then compare them to or how we filter, we have our facts and how we filter the non-Christian answers through those facts. Uh, most of the non-Christian answers, as I said, fail to fully account for all the facts. Um, however, other non-Christian answers may actually provide a plausible example for one of the facts that we're going to talk about. Okay, so you have, for example, we're going to talk about the swoon theory first and Jesus' death by crucifixion. So it could, it's feasible that the, the swoon theory could account for the idea that Jesus died by crucifixion. It's, it's woefully inadequate, really, like because you, when you go to the Roman crucifixion, you're dead. And we're going to talk about that. But even if, like, let's say hypothetically that it happened, if it answered fact one, it, would, it wouldn't, wouldn't account for the other four facts. Okay. So let's walk through it. So... Jesus died by crucifixion. So there's a, like I said, it's the swoon theory that tries to say Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. Rather, he swooned or faked his death and appeared to his disciples three days later. Uh, one of the big problems with this is that we know from historical record that prior to his crucifixion, Jesus was also flogged. You usually weren't flogged and crucified. You were usually one or the other. A person with wounds so deep the underlying tissue and bone were exposed. If you don't know what a flogging is, the cat of nine tails put rocks and all kinds of other sharp things and would laugh. It's terrible. Um, and we see that Jesus falls and collapses numerous times. Um, so much so that a man named Simon was ordered to help him carry, carry the cross. Most people would say it was just the upright portion of the cross. Uh, but that's Mark 15, 12, that it talks about that and gives that account. And this was most likely due uh, to uh, the brutal flogging which Jesus had gone through and the massive blood loss. So he was probably in, in shock from blood loss um, and leading to, faint, losing, leading to him losing his consciousness or f causing fainting spells. And it would be natural to survive fiction. Crucifixion over the centuries. In fact, it comes from the practice. It actually means a pain like the pain of the cross, a pain like the pain of crucifixion. So they even came up with a term for it. It was so bad. The side was pierced to verify his death. From the account, flowed from the wound. From this we know Jesus' heart was pierced. Um, Jesus' heart would have been beating rapidly from the extreme blood loss. His heart would have been beating faster to try to, to push what little blood he had. He would have gone, I think the term's tachycardic, pushing everything through, what little volume that was there. And this would have caused water to accumulate around his, his, his pericardial sac, the sac around your heart. And this wound, when pierced on the side, it would have not only collapsed the lung, too, to come into his heart, um, it would have pierced his heart, causing the water and the blood to run out. So he most assuredly died on the cross. But, okay, even though 
we know he died on the cross. And there's like literally, you know, you can't say 0% chance of, you know, 0.001% chance that he didn't. But let's, for the sake of argument, say that he didn't, okay? So his condition he would have been in post-crucifixion would not have the air of a resurrected king around it, right? He would have been weak and frail. Think of going through all that, all the, everything that he went through, even if somehow, by some happenstance, that he made it through that, he would not have had the, you know, the, the air about him that the disciples then went preaching the gospel and bring it to the ends of the earth of Jesus as a resurrected king and the, the Messiah and all these kinds of things. His condition would surely not have, like I said, inspired his disciples to spread that message, which means that the theory fails to answer our third fact, which was um, that they were, they were willing to take the, their life to the ends of the earth so even if Jesus, was, it was a swoon theory, okay, and he didn't die, which he did, they, they wouldn't have gone around proclaiming him as the Messiah, as the resurrected king. Believing brother, James, as a convert, that's our fourth fact, okay, so this not only is a swoon theory, theory failed to answer fact number three, it fails to answer fact number four, because James most assuredly if hypothetically, again, he did survive in that condition, James, his unbelieving brother, would not have then worshipped him as God and, and became a Christian. So the swoon theory on its face fails to answer our first fact. Even, you know, it's, it's out the window because it fails to account for actual, you know, the flogging and the crucifixion, the fact that he was, he was dead. But even if we hypothetically grant that, it still fails to answer fact three and four. Okay, so that's kind of the model of what I'm talking about is that we have these known facts and you have to, th you stop and you think about, well, even if that was true, well, how, how would that account for these other known facts? So any questions so far? Okay. So fact two. Fact two. After his death, his followers had real experiences that they thought were we talked about 1 Corinthians 15 3 to 11 before and I'll go ahead and read it again because it, it bears repeating for most important what I had received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then he appeared to over 500 other brothers and sisters at one time. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So, again, this is not the only account of Jesus appearing to individuals post-resurrection. And we addressed some of those, I think, two weeks ago, those other scriptures that talk about it, but it's very profound. Um, it was not just that Jesus appeared to the apostles, but he appeared to hundreds of people. Not only that, says that many are still alive. And his general tone here is that this is a verifiable event because people could go and ask those that, that are still alive. He's almost telling the Corinthian church to go and verify this for themselves. So now people who refuse to believe in the resurrection say that one of the theories the counter theories is, is that, well, these people were merely hallucinating. So the problems are individual and unique to the person. Okay. You don't have a, any kind of, you don't have a, a drug-induced hallucination and two people are seeing the same thing. They're having their own independent things going on in their mind where they're hallucinating. Okay. So and also, over 500 people do not have one shared hallucination, let alone one appeared to um, groups of people. Okay. This hallucination theory run into an issue with our other being fact four that James, Jesus' brother, was converted. Okay, well, we'll talk more about four in, in a minute. Uh, but James most assuredly would not have abandoned his 
unbelieving view of his brother and became a disciple based off of a hallucination. Also James, and we're going to talk about this after this one, but James was also a Jew, and for him to give up Judaism for a hallucination is absurd. Okay? the James lives and martyrdom of his apostles again the Jews weren't going to just give up their everything that was interconnectedly woven into the Jewish life for a hallucination final fact fact five that the tomb was indeed empty because even if it was a hallucination the the tomb was empty still again experiences Jesus' followers had is that Jesus actually appeared to them. Okay. Any questions about fact two? Okay. Moving on to fact three. So the disciples' lives were transformed as a result, even to the point of being willing to die specifically for their faith in the resurrection message. So they were, they they died, not just, they weren't just martyred, they were martyred proclaiming the resurrection. Now, it's one of our established facts, and it's um, important to, to, to flush it out. And again, it's affirmed by secular scholars as well as Christian scholars. And to me personally, this has always been one of the most, the most profound, um, that it because it just it doesn't make sense if it was if it was false um, and I find it just one of the most convincing so again, again <clears throat> to a first century Jew like the disciples your Jewishness was everything the central to the to every and right the laws, you were in right standing with God. It is a complete abandonment of much of, of much of this from Jesus' followers. And some of these are the long-held food laws are set aside. They no longer keep the Sabbath on Saturday, but start to worship on Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection. They're cut off from the temple and the Jewish sacrificial system, which to a Jew was the means of atonement for sin. So think to yourself, what upheaval and overturning in your life of everything that you've held dear and everything that you've formed your identity in. So we're not even just saying because the, the Jewish life and the Jewish faith was, I mean, we are supposed to live out our faith, but it was something that like affected where they ate all this kind of stuff. So think about what it would take for you to upend everything about you and your culture. What would that, what would that be and what would that take? Um, and seeing and interacting with the risen Jesus is really the only logical explanation that I can think of. Also, with this fact, apostles were martyred except for John. Now, um, that people being martyred, martyred is nothing new. Uh, we see acts in the Middle East of other people and other places where they are martyr themselves every day. It's different than what we see today. What we see in typical martyrdom is people dying for what they think is true. They have an Ayatollah telling them to die for something they cannot verify for themselves, something that they can't verify the truthfulness of. However, the apostles' martyrdom was much different. If have died for something they knew was false. They would have died if they didn't see Jesus resurrected or you know, thought that they saw them, Jesus resurrected, they wouldn't have been willing to go and be martyred for it. The whether or not the claims of which they were going to die were true or not. They either saw Christ resurrected or they did not. They either went to the tomb and it was empty or they did not. If they did not see the raised Jesus they, and they did not see the tomb emptied, then they surely would not have endured extreme persecution and death. See, people will, die, will not die for what they know is false. 
on top of or material to gain. In fact, and even successful tax collectors like Matthew, but they gave their lifestyles up for a life of persecution for the sake of the gospel. So simply give non-Christian answer of, well, you know, people are martyred every day is really inadequate because it fails to fully understand what the martyrdom of the disciples was and what it looked like. Additionally, it fails to answer all of our four other established facts. It doesn't account for James, James's conversion. Um, it's, so it's, it's, just, it's just woefully inadequate to just be like, well, everybody's martyred. There's people martyred today. It doesn't account for anything. So fact, any questions on that one? Okay. So fact four. James, Jesus' unbelieving brother, became a Christian due to his own experience with whom he believed to be the resurrected Christ. John 7, 5 tells us that not even his brothers believed in him, speaking of Jesus. In Mark 3, Jesus is ministering to multitudes and drawing massive crowds. We're then told that his family tries to restrain him or cause him or seize him because they thought he was out of his mind. Scripture is clear that Jesus, his family, and his brother were skeptical the point of thinking Jesus was out of his mind. Yet, his brother James becoming a follower of Christ. Now, he becomes the head of the most central Christian church at the time. He was the head of the Jerusalem church. Sources. It doesn't say this in the Bible itself, but sources outside of the Bible. We know that James was one of the first Christian martyrs. Josephus, as we I talked about him previously, as well as a second, I'm going to mess up his name, Hegesippus, faith in 62 A.D. by the high priest at the time, Aeneas, A-N-A-N-U-S. So, worshiping his brother, his own brother, as God, on to the point of death. Now, I don't have know that getting them to worship me as God and to die for me was would be an impossible order. I'm just, I'm just saying. So, um, that, you know, your you know, as James's brother did. See, Jesus' resurrection is the only thing that would account for James's 180-degree turn. Not only did he convert to Christianity and was martyred, but he also, just like the, the fact before this, he completely gave up his Jewishness. Right? And Jesus' resurrection, again, is the only one, is the only explanation that would account for all the other established facts. Now, there's an interesting and unique non-Christian theory about, about Jesus that he was, that he had a, and this, he had a twin, okay? And it was this twin that was seen post-resurrection, and it was twin that started the church, okay? Proves little more than interesting and unique. In addition to credibility, it fails to answer, answer several of our other five facts. Most specifically, this, this theory falls flat because James, Jesus' brother, would have known about and he would have known that the twin brother was not Jesus. Okay? Further, his disciples part of three years with Jesus would have known Jesus intimately and would have been able to spot out an imposter. James and the other disciples would not go and be martyred for somebody that they would have very easily known, a twin, a mysterious twin brother, they would have known was not Jesus. And specifically, James would have known about the brother and would have been able to call him out. So, but uh, any questions so far? Chris? Yes? Uh, when you say James gave up his Jewish beliefs, was that the belief that the Messiah had not yet come? No, I mean like the... Well, it would be that would be one of them. It, so the question was: Is he gave up the idea that the Messiah had not yet come? Yes. Um, well, because the Jewish the Jewish idea of Messiah 
prior to the resurrection, but prior to Jesus was as a conquering, you know, military leader that would throw off the, the Romans and, you know, because there was, in that intertestamental period, there was numerous, you know, like the, the empire after the Greeks, after Alexander died, was broken into other empires. And there was um, all, all kinds of, I can't remember the guy's name. It was, uh, I'm going to remember it halfway through when I go, come back to it. But uh, he actually slaughtered a pig on the altar and all this kind of stuff. So they, they thought that the, the Jews thought the Messiah was going to be like this conquering king. And so Jesus really upended that uh, idea. And yes, so James abandoned that idea, became a Christian. He, he abandoned, um, you know, the, the, the sacrificial system being one of the big ones um, and worshiping on Sundays and all that kind of stuff. So any other questions? Antiochus Epiphanes. I knew I was going to remember. <laughs> he came in. He was, he was one of the guys that came in after and he slaughtered the pig on the altar. That's called a cog, or what do they call that? I can't remember now. I'll remember later. But there's something you don't, and then it will pop into your head later. So that was a name. I'll remember later. So, okay. <laughs> and so any other questions about, about that so far or anything else? Okay. Uh, so number five, or our fifth fact. Jesus' tomb was empty. So, was preached in the same city where Jesus had been buried shortly before. Jesus' disciples were in a place where no one had heard of Jesus and began preaching about the resurrection, but instead began preaching in Jerusalem, the very city that Jesus had died, where he was crucified at, and where he was buried. Uh, they could not have done this if Jesus was still in the tomb. No one would have believed them. No one would have been foolish enough to believe a man had risen from the dead when his body still lay in the tomb for everyone to go see. Against Christianity actually admits to the empty tomb. In Matthew 28, 11 to 15, there's a to the Jewish attempt to refute what Christianity was claiming. And what they said was that his disciples stole his body. Now, this is significant because it shows that Jesus did not, or that Jews did not deny the empty tomb. Instead, actually admits to the truth that the tomb was in fact empty. If it was by saying, well, he's not risen, the body's still in the tomb, let me go show you. Thirdly, we have between a Christian and a Jew in which a claim the body was stolen. So it's a pretty well-established fact that the early Jews admitted themselves to the empty tomb. Now the storm is expounded on to this day, but there's a big problem with it. If we view the stolen body mentioned facts, the disciples stealing the body makes no sense. A stolen body would not account for the disciples' ability and have abandoned these for a lie that they predicated, right? Because it's saying the disciples stole the body. So it would be them, them that's predicating this lie. So that fails to account for fact one. Or, sorry, it fails to account for, I think it was fact three. I apologize. It would not account for the resurrected Jesus. It would not account for the disciples vehemently preaching the resurrection on to the point of martyrdom. Again, why especially one that they predicated. And it does not account for James's brother or James, Jesus' brother, becoming a follower of Christ in his subsequent martyrdom. With the reports of the empty tomb, and that the Christians at the time said women found the tomb empty. We mentioned this last week briefly. Um, but again, it, 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 it's pretty weighty and it, it bears repeating. This may not seem significant for us, but Jewish culture was considered worthless. Uh, William Lane Craig, um, if you want to, he wrote a lot, he's written a lot of stuff on the resurrection, the proof for it. Um, 
has this to say about this, the significance of the women finding the tomb. And I quote, if the empty tomb story were a legend, then it is most likely that the male disciples would have been made the first to discover the empty tomb. The fact that it was deemed worthless in that culture where the chief witnesses to the fact of the empty tomb can only be plausible Tomb. See if the disciples, it would have been the men who found the tomb. Because of the strong evidence for the empty tomb, most recent scholars do not deny it. Jacob Kremer, who is who has specialized in the study of the resurrection, and is a New Testament critic, so this is a critic saying this, says by far most exegetes hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. And he then lists 28 scholars, secular scholars, who back him up on this fact. D.H. Van Dalin has said, it is extremely difficult on historical grounds. Those who deny theological or philosophical assumptions. So this leads to the question, why do people deny the resurrection? So before we go on to that, did anybody have any questions kind of about the, the empty tomb? Okay. So, why do people deny the resurrection? Well, people deny it based on theological or philosophical assumptions. The philosophical assumption is one that he's speaking about is one that miracles cannot happen. This is based on a very poor philosophical argument that is really just circular reasoning by a man named David Hume. And if you can go, I thought about talking about Hume, maybe I should have when I went through some of the other philosophical stuff before. Um, but if you want, you can go look it up and um, William Lane Craig talks about it, other people talk about it. Uh, however, so it's, it's a very poor philosophical argument, circular reasoning, and it, it automatically from the beginning presupposes that, the that miracles can't happen. And so if you presuppose something can't happen, then you're not going to come to the conclusion that that thing you presupposed wouldn't be the cause. You wouldn't come to that conclusion. And I mentioned this before. It'd be like, you know, if my son, you know, or if I came home and the cookie jar, all the cookies were gone out of the cookie jar, and I immediately said, my son Eli, I'm not going to come to the conclusion if I truly exclude him from the, the calculus that I'm going to conclude that it's him. So if you come and go, well, miracles aren't possible, and then you argue, you make an argument for why, you know, the resurrection and everything, and you say you automatically take miracles off the table, then of course you're going to conclude. So the same thing happens like with, um, you know, when you get into, you know, creation and all that kind of stuff. If you immediately say God didn't do it, then, well, then how can you conclude that God did it? Or how can you, if the presuppose and exclude it, you're not going to follow those trails to where they lead. You're going to think of something else. So that, but that's what David Hume does when he, because he said it's circular, and then he also says, well, miracles can't happen. So it's, it's a very poor argument. The philosophical assumptions of those who deny the resurrection get at the very root of our sin nature and our fallen state. So like Mr. Uh, Dr. Van Dielen, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, said, there's theological and philosophical or assumptions. Um, there are th theological suppositions, assumptions. See, if Christ our sin nature, because if Christ died, it verifies what he said, who he claimed to be, which was God, and his stated conditions for salvation. That is, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes on the Father except through me. So if he did from the dead, then that person is confronted face-to-face -face with their sin, and the only way of salvation is through Christ. Further, if Jesus rose from the dead, it verifies what he said about sin, its effects, our utter hopelessness to atone for our sins apart from his blood, his sacrifice, and his work on the cross. See, people want to be Lord of their life. They do not want Jesus to be Lord of their life. So they will deny 
staring them in the face in order to maintain their autonomy. But this unwillingness to surrender to Christ will lead to ruin. Paul if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay. So these people, the people who they're ideas is and they've they've studied it so much is because they it gets a, the very nature the sin nature of man because they do not want to bend the knee to Christ and you can see other examples like guys um, who sit there and are there's a famous um, evolutionary theory guy at a, he's out of Cambridge and with, and regarding, you know, the, the fact that you can't come from life to no life and the astronomical odds, it's one in trillions of trillions of trillions, he says, well, aliens must have seeded him. Instead of going, well, no, maybe it was God. He goes, well, aliens did it. Well, it's because you don't have to submit to a moral, the moral authority of an alien. You have to submit to the moral authority of a God. And that's why, they really, that's why they don't even when it's staring them in the face. So this model, hopefully as we see it, is kind of a good model for all aspects of apologetics. So we have resurrection, but about life, morality, creation, etc. We've kind of really focused on the, the, the central piece, uh, which is the resurrection. Uh, but I kind of gave the, the analogy of the puzzle, right? So we have these pictures that we're starting to see of the puzzle so these the way that we connect them together or the way we can know you know well is this piece fit into this this picture is to by comparing it to the the other known parts of the puzzle right so if you, if you have, you might not be able to make ends of well which ones actually belong to this puzzle which ones are these are true but as you start to put the pieces into place and you start to build the little pictures here and there, you start to see it, how they connect, and then you can then you can take a false claim or a false piece and you can lay it and compare it to the other ones and go, well no, this doesn't fit because it doesn't account for all of this. And it's the same thing true when we there are there are certain things that we know about not just the resurrection, but about the world, creation, morality, all this kind of stuff. And when we can sit there and somebody brings a claim about they're not being a god or makes a claim for, you know, well, how, you know, above, well, they, they stole the body or whatever. You can sit there and go, okay, these are the facts that we know and then compare what they're saying and vet it through all those known facts. And if they don't answer all those facts that we know, then it's most likely it's not true because the only, the thing that is most likely true, even if you're just talking about odds, is the thing that answers all the facts that you know. And that's kind of what we did here is we have these five facts and none of the other postulated facts, they don't accurately explain all five of these. Only the, one, the only one that does is that Jesus actually resurrected from the dead. So, any questions? The whole thing. All, yeah, because that's, that's my end right there. Why, why about the, the massive gnosis thing? Yeah. Why would scholars tend to even bring that up if that's just something has it ever happened well it's it's there's i guess at least a certain level of intellectual honesty that you have to account for it like you can't just go they didn't see him or they didn't think that they saw him we know that the evidence shows that we know it and again it's one of those things for you to to say something like to say that you, they actually saw him is to admit that he was resurrected. And so it's, it's kind of a, there's, a, there's actually a really good uh, um, documentary if you want to check it out. It's, uh, it's called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. It doesn't have to do with this, but it's because like, people are unwilling to, to even get a, like, give a little bit of a, of a uh, give anything to the Christian view because they're so hostile towards it. So they basically, and that's what they, that's what they argue in that is that the, there's academics who are blatantly 
presupposing that, well, like creation can't at all. There can't even be any of that. So it's, it's really that they, they just, because really by saying that if they, were, if they saw him, if they actually saw him, then they would be admitting to the resurrection. But also it's just, it's seeking to be wise. They become, you know, it's like that thing. Like, you, have, you know, Romans 1, you have it staring you in the face. You have creation staring you in the face. And then you sit there and, you know, you deny it. And it's like, but that's, uh, to me, to me, that's like the, that's the heart of like man's sin nature. You know, you know, like with the, the Jews in, in the Exodus and them being hard-hearted and stiff-necked, they, they refused even when this is happening to, to, to bend the knee to, to God. So, I guess, any other questions? But yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of, it's really silly when you like, like 500 people? Okay. So, but uh, all right, if there is any other questions, let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today, and we thank you for this day, Lord. Um, we uh, thank you for our time together. I just pray that uh, it was edifying and encouraging. And we thank you that we can discover the truth about you. We can discover the truth that you've revealed yourself in the world, in history, in the word, and not just in our text, but in other texts. And it's such an amazing thing. There's such a, a mountain of evidence that's just sitting there uh, that we can, we can not only just have spiritual faith in you, Lord, but also have, our, have rooting of our faith in you know, reality, because so many religions don't have that. They, and it's because they're not true. And you came to us, you revealed yourself to us, Lord, and it's such an amazing thing. And we thank you for that. We thank you we can discover your truth every day. And we thank you that we can rest on your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.